Let me invite the rest of you to turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34, John introduces us to the first of several witnesses to Jesus' true identity, John the Baptist himself. And last week, we worked through verses 19 through 28. We'll take up our exposition now with verse 19, I'm sorry, with verse 29, But let's go ahead and reread, beginning with verse 19. John chapter 1 and verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then, why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day... He saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God." When a delegation came from Jerusalem to inquire about John's identity, his response, as we discovered last week, included three denials and one affirmation. John denied that he was the Christ, the Messiah. He also denied that he was Elijah. And he denied that he was the prophet. Moses, of course, spoke of a coming prophet that reminded people of himself, and John says, I am not that prophet. Well then, who are you, John? And his affirmation is recorded in verse 23, I am the voice 
of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John quotes the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And this metaphor of making a smooth road through the desert, filling in the potholes, leveling out the hills, straightening out the curves, construct a clear path ahead, is a metaphor for bringing people straight to Christ, or Christ straight to the people. Just remove all the obstacles and let people come straight to Jesus. And in verse 19, we discovered that John refers to the testimony of John the Baptist. The word is also translated witness. And the Greek term eventually evolved into a term that we think of when we think of somebody who dies for Christ. It's the word from which we get our word martyr. And John was, in fact, the first great martyr for his testimony to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. There's something, I say, intrinsically powerful about the testimony of a martyr for Christ. When Jim Elliott and his four friends landed on a beach in Operation Alka, attempting to evangelize the Harani people in Ecuador, they sacrificed their own lives. Why? Because they wanted to cut a path right through the jungle for Christ to come to people. Elliot's journal entry for October 28, 1949, expresses his belief that work dedicated to Jesus is the most important work we can possibly do in this life. He famously wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, certainly not all Christians are called to martyrdom. In fact, the majority are not. However, a true witness to Christ just comes along and removes every obstacle, even if it means laying down his own life. Every obstacle between Jesus and a potential convert makes straight in the desert or through the jungles or over the water a highway for our God. And that brings us now to verse 29. The previous section centered on the question of John's identity. This section now centers on John's response when he saw Jesus approaching the place of his baptism. And in verse 29, John delivers a magnificently important statement concerning Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is certainly one of the most important declarations in all the Bible, and certainly in all human history. And that is the most important thing you will hear this week, undoubtedly, if you are a sinner sitting here wondering what to do about your sin. To fully appreciate this statement, let's just get it situated geographically and historically. First, would you notice where John was when he made this statement? In verse 28, John is in Bethany across the Jordan. There was another Jordan, I'm sorry, another Bethany, as commonly mentioned in the Gospels. 
And it lies down in the south, east, and just slightly south of Jerusalem. This is not the same Bethany. Across the Jordan refers to a Bethany over on the east bank of the Jordan and up north toward Galilee. Jerusalem, of course, is on the west side of the Jordan. And scholars actually have not definitively identified the location of Bethany beyond the Jordan. However, the consensus does point to a location in the north, the northern region of Israel just south of the Sea of Galilee. The time references in John's Gospel really are consistent with this northern location. Let's just locate these. They're very important. Again, in verse 28, John is in Bethany. In verse 29, then we read, The next day, John lays eyes on Jesus. So John is in Bethany when he sees Jesus. All right? And now look at verse 35. Again, we have a reference to the next day again. And that's most likely a reference to the same day, possibly the day after, but probably the same day. And John proceeds to tell us that Jesus begins the process of calling disciples. So let's call that day one. On day one, again, John sees Jesus, and Jesus begins calling disciples. Now look at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And there in Galilee, he finds, verse 44, Philip of Bethsaida. And Bethsaida, of course, is a town in Galilee. And this reference to going to Galilee might be a reference to the Sea of Galilee, near which Bethsaida was located, or Jesus might have actually gone to the actual town of Bethsaida. Probably not. Uh, when you look at where he goes next, but somewhere around Galilee, he finds Philip of Bethsaida. Either way, Bethany, where Jesus is the previous day, obviously must be within a day's journey of this second day location in Galilee. That's day two. And now chapter two and verse one brings us to the third day. On the third day, there was a wedding, notice where it was, at Cana in Galilee. And here, of course, Jesus performs his first miracle. So clearly, Jesus is up north, around Galilee, not down south in Judea. With that geography in place, let's just actually work out now some chronological or some historical details. This is really critical. People often read verses 29 through 34 as a reference to the actual baptism of Jesus. But this is actually impossible. When John, in verses 32 through 34, speaks of Jesus, the Spirit descending like a dove, he speaks in the past tense about something that he'd actually seen earlier. This is not a reference to the actual baptism. Let me give you four reasons why. First of all, in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we find references to Jesus' baptism. And those Gospels tell us Jesus was indeed down south in Judea. He's not up in the north, he's down south. All Jerusalem, the major city in the south, was flocking down to the Jordan to be baptized by John. 
Secondly, in the synoptics, the Pharisees and Sadducees themselves come out to John's baptism to inquire as to what he is doing. Jerusalem, of course, was close enough for the rulers to come and make sort of an in-person investigation. But here in John's Gospel, we read back in verse 19 of a leader sending out emissaries instead. And that difference seems to point to two different events. Thirdly, the synoptics tell us that Jesus came from Galilee to be baptized by John. He came down out of Galilee. That is, he left Galilee and came into Judea. But in John's gospel, Jesus appears to be moving in the opposite direction. He's moving back to the north. And then finally, this is really crucial, the synoptics tell us what happened immediately after Jesus' baptism. Jesus, after his baptism, goes out into the wilderness and he experiences 40 days of blistering persecution, temptation from the devil himself. But here in John, we are told that he goes into Galilee, he finds Philip of Bethsaida, and then he goes over to Cana for a wedding. So clearly we're talking about two different events. And when you harmonize the passages then, a very important chronology emerges. Let's just think our way through it now. John baptizes Jesus down in Judea. And Jesus then spends some 40 days out in the wilderness. And there he endures this three-pronged attack from the devil himself. And he emerges victorious. And of course, his baptism was the commencement of his public ministry. And Jesus' temptation demonstrates him to be an altogether fit redeemer to redeem us from our sins and to succeed where Adam fell. That's what's going on in the synoptics. And with those two crucial events behind us now, the baptism and the temptation, that's behind us now. We come to the events that we just read. It has been some 40 days since John last saw Jesus, probably a couple extra travel days in there as well. And Jesus has just survived the wilderness temptation. So now he moves back to the north. He reconnects with John the Baptist at Bethany, and he begins calling disciples And when John first lays eyes on Jesus, whom he baptized some 40 days earlier, what does he say? Verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in verse 30, he proceeds to claim of this man, This is he of whom I said, after me comes, notice the next two words, a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John lays eyes on a flesh and blood human being, a man, and he declares that man to be none other than the Son of God. 
Now, there's an extremely important reason I work through all that detail. And it's not just sermon filler because we've got 45 minutes to take care of. That's not why I'm doing this. Why is this so incredibly important? What comes to mind when you picture the scene in your mind's eye? John the Baptist points to Jesus Christ as a lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And what does the Lamb of God look like? What does God in human flesh, who has come to take on the powers of darkness, what does He look like? I wonder if you've ever really read this passage in chronological order and actually contemplated Jesus' appearance. I read it for years and pictured John as a or Jesus rather as a strong, vigorous, athletic, young Palestinian man just ready to take on the world. He's our champion. And certainly in Revelation, the Lamb of God is a conquering hero who alone can just open the scroll that no man can even look on. But what does Jesus actually look like? Well, he has just survived the greatest temptation known to any man in all of human history. How much has Jesus eaten since John last saw him? Would you picture with me Jesus just rising up out of the Jordan? And he proceeds immediately under the Spirit's leadership out into the wilderness. And now he is starving to death. He is on the verge of complete bodily collapse. He has eaten nothing for some 40 days. His knobby limbs begin to dangle loosely in their sockets. His eyes are sunken backwards in his skull. His body has eaten away its muscle tissue. His ribs protrude through a thin veil of skin covered with putrid sores. His bodily organs are on the brink of collapse. He is wasting away in the burning Judean wilderness. I have stood on the edge of that wilderness and it looks like the surface of the moon. Nothing moves. Nothing grows. There's nothing there but stones bleached white under a blistering Mediterranean sun. You can't imagine anyone surviving in that place for a day, much less 40 days. And Jesus has suffered as great a trial as any human has ever experienced. In the Greek of Luke's account, is really quite emphatic. The tempter comes again and again and again, not just on day 40. Jesus' strength ebbs away on day 7 and 15 and 23 and 29. Day 37, day 38, day 39. And the tempter just keeps on coming and keeps on assaulting him. And day 40, the tempter comes for a final time. And the temptation is identical to the temptation of Adam in the garden. Eat, 
The temptation was not that changing stones to bread was somehow sinful. In John 2, Jesus goes to Cana and he transforms water into wine. Turning the stone into bread is not inherently sinful. Rather, the temptation concerns Christ's fulfillment of God's plan for him to truly sympathize with human suffering, with human weakness, to truly experience our curse, to understand the frailty of our humanity, and to succeed at his weakest where Adam fell at his strongest. That was the Father's will for his Son. So friends, that picture in your mind's eye of Jesus as a strong, vigorous, athletic, youthful man just ready to take on the world to exercise creation dominion, that's Adam. That's not Jesus. Jesus is a skeletal survivor of a brutal ordeal in the desert. Jesus' suffering was, in fact, so horrific that Matthew and Mark tell us that God had to dispatch angels to minister to him at the end of his ordeal. Just imagine that. The angels have to come out and rescue him. Now, we don't know exactly how much time transpired between the end of that temptation and verse 29, but very probably it's very short. And one does not recover immediately from 40 days of starvation in the wilderness. And I do indeed imagine that Jesus looked more like a sacrificial lamb than a roaring lion when John greeted him. So behold, the Lamb of God. And friends, how can we be certain then that that same Jesus, in the words of verse 29, can take away the sin of the world? How can you be certain this morning that He actually can take away your sin? That's actually what you need most. Someone to just simply take away your sin. Well, Luke's account of Christ's baptism... And his temptation really answers that question for us in a very pointed way. So let's actually turn there. Let's turn to Luke chapter 3 momentarily and just observe how he structures his gospel to make an extremely important point. And I have referenced this passage on previous occasions. In fact, I do think that the first time I ever preached at UBC, I preached from the genealogy here in Luke chapter 3. I need to go back and look, but I think that was my first sermon here. And I've referenced it, I think, once or twice since. And I'm always a little bit hesitant to go back and review something. But there's some passages that are just so crucially important, and they shape my thinking. This is one of my favorite passages, actually, that uh, we have new people come in. I'm like, you know what, I just I need to go back to that and make sure we've got that. All right? So Luke chapter 3 And if you look at verses 21 and 22, Luke records the baptism of Jesus. Then in chapter 4 and verse 1, Luke narrates the temptation of Jesus Christ. Baptism followed by temptation. However, 
Observe how, what Luke situates between Christ's baptism and Christ's temptation. What's in between is a genealogy. It runs from chapter 3, verse 23, down to chapter 3 and verse 38. And let's note just three things about this genealogy. First of all, and most obviously, the genealogy links Christ's baptism and Christ's temptation. There's a link between these two. Undoubtedly, Luke deliberately situates his genealogy between these two events for a reason. Initially, it seems quite out of place. You would expect the genealogy at the beginning of the gospel. That's where Matthew puts it, Matthew 1 and verse 1. This actual jarring displacement just really forces the question, why is Luke doing this? Why is he linking the, bapti- the baptism and the temptation like this? And secondly, Luke's is the only genealogy in the Bible that moves from Christ all the way back to Adam. This is the only genealogy that actually puts those two people together in one chain. And thirdly, this is the only genealogy in the Bible, and probably most of Jewish history for that matter, that runs from the youngest backwards to the oldest. This genealogy actually begins with Jesus and goes back to Adam. Whereas genealogies typically give priority of place to the oldest ancestor and descend downward through time, Luke's genealogy uniquely gives Christ priority of place at the head and then traces his lineage backwards through time. Matthew 1 begins with Abraham, then Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and so forth. Of course, the Jews kept very precise genealogical records. And it really makes sense to begin with the oldest ancestors so you can keep adding names as new children are born. You can't do that with Luke's genealogy. In fact, when you reverse the order, you communicate that we have actually reached the end of the line. No more names are going to be added here. This is the end. Something has come to an abrupt end with Jesus. And we know exactly what that is. It is the reign of sin. But it's ascended down from Adam. Something comes to an end with Jesus of Nazareth. And now notice what else happens when you reverse the order. And remember, there were no chapter divisions in the original. In Luke 3 and verse 38, you find Adam. Next verse. Chapter 4, verse 1. No chapter division. There's Jesus. And just make a mental note at this point of how Adam is described in verse 38. He is called the Son of God. Luke's reverse genealogy then brings Adam, the Son of God, into view immediately before the wilderness temptation. You're thinking of Adam. Now follow Christ into the wilderness. And we are supposed to connect Adam in the garden with Jesus on the other end of that chain out there in the wilderness that has been ruined by Adam's sin. 
So when you put all that together, Christ's baptism signaled his public incarnate identification with Adam's lost race. He numbered himself with transgressors in his baptism. He had nothing to repent of, but apparently we can't even repent like we should. So he numbers himself with us in his public identification with Adam's lost race. And that baptism was the beginning of his public ministry. After 30 years just waiting there in the shadows, the Son of Man suddenly steps forward and he emerges for a rerun of Eden. He emerges to challenge and to destroy that ancient tempter who succeeded in procuring the fall of Adam. That means for us that Luke's genealogy links together the two most important satanic temptations in all of history. So picture with me Adam in paradise. He's never hungered, he's never thirsted, he's never experienced pain, sorrow, or death. He has all the food that he can possibly eat. And yet the tempter comes and masterfully succeeds in causing him to take of the forbidden tree and to eat. And picture Jesus in the wilderness ruined by Adam's sin. His condition is unimaginably worse than Adam's in the garden. And the temptation is the same. Eat! And Jesus had good reason to eat. He's starving to death. And Adam had no reason to eat. And not only does Jesus succeed, he goes on to endure two more satanic assaults and he emerges victorious. Now bring all that back now to John chapter 1. Bring that back to John chapter 1. Keep that scene in your mind's eye. The second Adam has indeed come. He has wasted away to nothing in the desert He has destroyed the ancient tempter at his weakest, where Adam fell in paradise at his strongest. And Jesus now returns to the north, and he reconnects with John the Baptist in Bethany. And John lifts up his eyes, and he sees that skeletal, emaciated figure coming into view. And in verse 29, he declares, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, of course, Jesus can take away the sin of the world. Since John last saw Jesus in the waters of baptism some 40 days earlier, Jesus has gone on to endure the fiercest, most diabolical, fiendish, relentless, satanic attack in all of human history a temptation that will never be surpassed. And Jesus emerged victorious, demonstrating his absolute mastery over his own humanity and over the devil himself. It's no wonder then that John's declaration concludes, verse 34, and I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now remember that description of Adam that I told you to note back in Luke chapter 3, verse 38. Adam also was called the Son of God. 
Adam was created immediately by God without human parents. He was not, of course, a son of God in the same sense that Jesus is the son of God. But when we look at these two sons of God, Adam and Christ, the comparison is really acute. Which son of God would you rather have represent you to the Father? Adam or Jesus Christ? Those are your two options, and your only two options, Adam or Christ. Which son of God? One son brought sin into the world. And one son, verse 29, takes away the sin of the world. Now, how exactly did John know that Jesus was indeed the Son of God? And John will add some clarity. Let's back up to verse 31. John says, I myself did not know him. He was an ordinary Galilean man. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. Here's what I saw. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Initially, John did not know that Jesus was the redeeming Son of God. He was a man. But the Spirit who came on Jesus testified that John the Baptist, who Jesus truly is, once again, notice how John speaks in the past tense. He recalls that day, some 40 days earlier, when he witnessed a dramatic sign. The Holy Spirit descended from heaven like a dove on Jesus and remained on Jesus. That was the sign. And apparently God had told John the Baptist, look, look for that Spirit to come on this man, and then you'll know who the Redeemer is. And once John identified that Spirit-filled Redeemer, his mission then was to point people straight to Jesus, prepare in the desert a highway straight to Jesus, straight to the man from Nazareth. So John baptizes people with water and he calls them to repent. But John understood that his baptism was not an end in itself. Rather, it was a preparatory baptism designed to prepare people to meet Jesus. And Jesus, verse 33, would indeed bring about a baptism with the Holy Spirit. And that baptism, the New Testament tells us, is the baptism whereby the Holy Spirit just possesses us at the moment of salvation. That's what Jesus has come to offer us, the right to be possessed by the Spirit. That baptism, we are told, elsewhere in the New Testament, just places us into the body of Christ. And it really is quite marvelous when you think about it. That same Spirit that descended on Jesus and remained on Him, think of this, that same Spirit comes on you 
and remains. That is the foundation of your salvation. That is the foundation of your sanctification. That Spirit has come to possess you and to restore you into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. Now observe now one other crucial detail about John's testimony to Jesus in verse 30. John recognized that Jesus actually came before him. He was a man. Yes, he was the incarnate man. But he also says, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John was older than Jesus. In Jewish culture, highly venerated the elderly as opposed to the younger. Jewish culture was all about rank. We also know that John's ministry was launched before that of Jesus. Nevertheless, Jesus says, or John says, he was before me. This is certainly a testimony to the pre-existence of this man that John is pointing us to. Jesus' human life began in the womb of the virgin, but Jesus' existence as the Son of God did not begin there at all. Before John, Jesus was. Jesus is. So when you put all that together, really, here is John's testimony. It's fourfold. First of all, Jesus is the Lamb of God. Secondly, John testifies to Jesus' pre-existence. Thirdly, Jesus' identity is authenticated by the coming of the Holy Spirit. And fourthly, verse 34, Jesus is none other than the Son of God. That's a pretty powerful witness to Jesus' true identity. Now, let me just deal with one little hermeneutical issue. Sometimes I think when I say the word hermeneutics, everybody goes, oh no. Okay, that just means an interpretational issue, all right? I don't want to get confused by this. But there really is a significant issue in verse 29. And I just want to tackle it just in case it becomes an issue. In verse 29, John calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That statement implies that John understood Jesus' mission was to become the final sacrificial lamb, to die on a cross, and to deliver us from our sins. That certainly does imply that, and it certainly does mean that. And that's why John, the gospel writer, is recording this in his gospel. But did John the Baptist really understand all of that when he made that declaration? When John was later imprisoned, he sent a messenger to ask Jesus, Are you he that should come, or do we look for another? John seems to have had some doubt about Jesus' mission. Further, it is not clear that anyone, including the disciples, really understood how Jesus was going to die as the sacrificial lamb. When Jesus revealed this truth of his death to the disciples, you recall Peter, Matthew 16 says, well, no, this will never happen to you. Oh, yes, it will, Peter. Not until Pentecost did the disciples really begin to put it all together. And they understand in the aftermath of the resurrection, oh, he had to die and resurrect. Oh, we get it. 
He is indeed the sacrificial lamb who has come to take away our sins. So that does raise a question. When John calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, what does John really understand? It is a little bit puzzling. And let me just answer the question with two observations. And probably it's in the harmonization of these two observations that we have the truth. First of all, many Jewish texts refer to an apocalyptic warrior lamb who in some way would come and just clean up all the sin of Israel. We read this often in ancient Jewish literature, First Enoch, the Testament of Joseph, the Testament of Benjamin, ancient Jewish sources where they're saying, look, the, the lamb is going to come and clean up all the sin. A conquering lamb is going to come. Now, just how that lamb would remove sin often had more to do with judgment and destruction than with expiation or atonement, making sacrifice. In other words, the details were a bit vague, but the Jews didn't believe, did indeed believe a lamb was coming and in some way he's going to just take away the sin of the world. And then secondly, in a covenantal sense, you have to remember that John is an Old Testament prophet. Yes, indeed, he shows up in the New Testament. But remember that he ministers before Jesus inaugurates the new covenant in his blood. We're still in the old covenant before the cross. And Peter tells us the prophets of the old covenant, the Old Testament, but the old covenant, predicted things under inspiration through the Holy Spirit that they themselves did not fully understand. Peter says they searched into the meaning of their own prophecies. Now, we as New Covenant believers understand those prophecies a whole lot better because we've seen the cross and we've seen the resurrection. So indeed, friends, John speaks absolutely truly when he says Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that is absolutely true. But it may be that John himself did not fully comprehend how this was even going to happen. He speaks truly under the inspiration of the Spirit, but he may have spoken in the way that many Old Testament prophets spoke, inerrantly, under inspiration but not fully understanding even what they were prophesying. But certainly, friends, it is true that in the aftermath of the cross and the resurrection, we can understand even more fully the profound words of verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, in conclusion, let me just ask this question. Where does this leave us this morning? If you recall from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew is really quite inductive in his approach to Jesus. Matthew wrote like a Middle Eastern historian who just inductively gives us lots of evidence along the way as to Jesus' true identity through his preaching, through his miracles. And he weaves all that evidence together into a portrait of Jesus. And finally, in Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus resurrects, we get the main point. 
All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. He is, in fact, none other than the Son of God. That's how Matthew ends. All the evidence points decisively to this conclusion, Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. John, on the other hand, is very bold from the outset. Look at verse 1. In the beginning was God, and the, the Logos, right from the beginning. And the Logos was God. And then John just skips right over much historical detail. He tells us nothing of Jesus' genealogy, his birth, his early years, his baptism, his temptation. And John goes right to his first witness, John the Baptist himself. And what does that first witness proclaim? Jesus is a Lamb of God who can take away your sin. In other words, when I read John chapter 1, friends, there is an urgency to what John is doing. There are times, indeed, when people come to Christ slowly and inductively. There are people who come to Christ through 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 10 years. But friends, for others, there is an urgency in their coming to Christ. And I just wonder if there's someone here and you just need the urgency of this gospel. Can I just ask you, what are you waiting for? If your sin is holding you back, then would you just look again at the words of verse 29? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You will never read more important words in all your life. What are you going to do with these words? There is an urgency, possibly for somebody right here in this room, to come to Christ and to wait no longer. Shall we pray? Our Father, we give you thanks for the testimony of John. We give you thanks, Lord, for this communion table that we are about to observe. And we thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ has indeed come to take away the sin of the world. We pray, Lord, that somebody might experience that deliverance today. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.